BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. Tom Harmon here with you. Uh, We got a lot to talk about today. Uh, Putin has begun a paranoid purge of his leadership. Zelensky just addressed the Canadian Parliament and essentially begged for them to participate in or help influence America or, you know, the rest of the world to close the airspace over Ukraine. The leaders of four of the Baltic states are meeting in in Kiev, which is a pretty amazing statement. So that's, you know, kind of all going on on the surface. Zelensky will be speaking to the United States Congress. I'm guessing the speech will be pretty much the same deal, but that's what's happening there. Also, does Russia want Alaska? Seriously, we've got a Russian legislator talking about, hey, it's time to take Alaska now. Do we need nukes? No, we can do this. So we'll get into that. I want to get into how Donald Trump's call to Ukraine helped Putin. I guess we all know the, you know, the general outline of it. It was the subject of the impeachment probe, the first impeachment probe. But there's more to the story, and I'll share that with you. Also, why is America ignoring the increasingly violent rhetoric coming out of the Republican Party? We'll get into that. Stochastic terrorism, anybody? I'll fill you in on that. But I want to start out... A a growing form of uh, radicalism is creeping across America right now. According to analysis by uh, 538 Seth Maskett, any chance that the GOP is going to return to its more moderate ways is being undercut by supporters of Donald Trump. I find this absolutely an absolutely fascinating story that what we're seeing right now in the GOP is increasingly locally And I mean, Steve Bannon has been probably the primary cheerleader for this. He's been saying on his program for several years now, what I've been saying on mine for over a decade, I've been saying this since 2009, when the Republicans first really started cranking up the idea that you should get inside your political party and you should become a precinct committee person. And Steve Bannon has been saying the same thing. And the Trumpers are taking it to heart. And they are taking over local Republican parties like nobody's business. I mean, we had the head of the Republican Party here in Oregon uh, the week before last resigned because so many Trumpers have taken over his own party from within, from the bottom up, that he was like, I don't recognize this party anymore. I mean, that's not a verbatim quote, but words to that effect. He, he actually said that, the, that the, the Trump humpers in the Oregon Republican Party are, are worse are are more evil was the word he used than democrats and it's like whoa a republican saying that you know (laughs) trump humping republicans are worse than democrats yeah apparently so uh seth maskett who works for 538 he did this analysis and and he said that uh, far-right activists are trying to purge the republican party of everybody except the trump humpers and he calls this a growing form of radicalism he thinks it's uh Uh, it's actually what we're seeing is the Republican Party right in front of us. Now, these are my words, not his, but the the Republican Party right in front of us is changing from an old-fashioned, legitimate political party that just, you know, sucked up to billionaires and and big corporations into a full-blown neo-fascist regime. Into, it's becoming basically the party of fascism. And uh, he says this points to another signal that the Republican Party is undergoing a purge. 
So uh, TV terrorist Donald Trump is out there saying that his followers should be ready to lay down their lives for him. Right. What does that mean? Well, there's this, this concept called stochastic terrorism, where somebody calls out people in a way that doesn't explicitly say, go kill people, um, but does, and thus provokes terrorist actions by what are generally referred to as lone wolves. Is that what's going on here? This is from Donald Trump's speech this weekend, Saturday night in, in uh, Florence, South Carolina. He says, and I quote, Getting critical race theory out of our schools is not just a matter of values, it's also a matter of national survival. We have no choice. The fate of any nation depends on the willingness of its citizens to lay down, and they must do this, lay down their very lives to defend their country. If we allow the Marxists and communists and socialists to teach our children to hate America, there will be no one left to defend our flag and to protect our great country or its freedom. Right. Um, indivisible Sarah Dole said, calling for political violence to stop the teaching of accurate history in our schools. That's what fascism looks like. Condé Nast's legal affairs editor, Luke Zielinski, says, Trump doesn't want a political party. He wants an army. He's a TV terrorist. And, uh, and on it goes. But that's just the beginning. I mean, you know, you, you want to look at the, the situation in Ukraine? This was set up by Donald Trump. I realize Fox News is out there going, oh, well, if, if, if Trump was still president, Putin would never have invaded Ukraine. No, he wouldn't have had to. Trump would have simply handed it to him. I mean, it, <laughs> right now, one of the main reasons that Ukraine is able to hold off Russia is because we supplied them with anti-tank and anti-aircraft weapons. Those are our weapons that they're using to hold off Russians. And, and repeatedly, Trump left Ukraine hanging. I mean, it wasn't just the phone call, right? I mean, back, you know, Trump, Trump was, uh, say, he, he repeatedly said that Zelensky tried to take me down in 2016, right? Uh, Anita Hill, or excuse me, Fiona Hill, um, said in her testimony on, uh, for Trump's impeachment, quote, this is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic elections institutions in 2016, not Ukraine. Next, Trump personally froze $400 million of military aid to Ukraine, stuff that could take out tanks and aircraft defensive mil uh, weaponry, by and large, and, and said, you know, to, to uh, Zelensky, you know, Zelensky said, we're ready to take delivery of those Stinger missiles, and Trump said, well, yeah, but I want you to do me a favor. And on, Jan on July 2nd, in, uh, Amb Ambassador Volker conveyed this message directly to Zelensky. Uh, he, he said it was the, the Giuliani factor. He said, I'm sorry, we can't get you these weapons. And I'm sorry that a White House meeting is not going to occur until you announce that you're pursuing an investigation into Joe and Hunter Biden. And then that ratched up again even further on July 25th with that phone call to Zelensky. And this was about buying Javelin anti-tank missiles specifically. On August 28th, now we're a month later, Politico reported on the holdup of the aid. They said the same day Trump canceled a trip to Warsaw for a World War II commemorative event, he was scheduled to meet with Zelensky. Instead, he sent Mike Pence. At the meeting, and this is from Politico, at the meeting, President Zelensky expressed concern that even an appearance of wavering support for the United States from Ukraine could embolden Russia. Well, gee, that's exactly what happened. Zelensky buckled under the pressure. He, he booked an interview on CNN to announce that he was going to investigate, to do this investigation that Trump was demanding. He pulled out at the last minute, by the way. Good on him. But, you know, Trump's pressure on Ukraine and on Zelensky was not just one phone call. It was repeated. It lasted over a year. And it was about sending a message, in my opinion, to Russia that the United States would not defend Ukraine. Go ahead and take it. And surprise, surprise, that's what they're doing. The other, the other issue that I think is really worth talking about is this insanely violent rhetoric from the Republican Party that is getting more and more serious. 
I mentioned stochastic terrorism earlier, where, where uh, political figures or public figures make statements that cause, that activate, or that trigger lone wolves to go out and commit political violence. They don't say, hey, Ralph, go out there and kill somebody. No, instead they just you know, say, well, somebody needs to die. And poof, off it happens. And, and, and the, the core tenet, the basis of fascism, whether it's in the United States or anywhere else, is the use of violence to achieve political ends. That is intrinsic to the whole idea of fascism, political violence. And so what do we have now? Well, you know, earlier this week, or actually late last week, I shared with you Rick Scott's 11-point plan to save America, which involves raising taxes on 61%, the bottom 61% of Americans, ending Social Security and Medicare within five years, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a Republican wish list. And Rick Scott, that, that guy, the, the second richest guy in the United States Senate behind Mitt Romney, the guy who is, in my opinion, most likely going to be the Republican nominee for president in 2024, the guy who handles all the money going to Republicans who are running for election or re-election in the United States Senate, Rick Scott, he's got a multi-million dollar uh, slush fund here, essentially. He gave a speech, a keynote address, in fact, at CPAC. It was titled Awake, Not Woke. And I just have to share a couple paragraphs of this with you. This, this is... You know, again, in the context of stochastic terrorism, of normalizing, of Republicans normalizing political violence. And can you imagine if this guy becomes president and he's still pitching this line that it's okay for Republicans to kill Democrats? Just listen to this. This is what Rick Scott said. He said, we survived the War of 1812, the Civil War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and the Cold War. But today, now keep in mind, these were all wars where Americans died and Americans killed a hell of a lot of people. He just recites them all. Yes, massive violence. And then he continues. But today we face the greatest danger we have ever faced. The militant left wing in our country has become the enemy within. So here you have a United States senator and head, the head Republican in charge of getting other Republicans elected to the Senate and the leading candidate for president in 2024 saying that Democrats are worse than the Nazis we fought in World War II. They're worse than, than, than Tojo and the Japanese fascists we fought in World War II. They're, they're, they're worse than the, than the Confederacy that we fought in the Civil War. They're worse than, than, than Kim and the, and the Chinese communists that we fought in Korea. I mean, really? They're worse than the British and the French who burned the White House in the War of 1812. He cites the War of 1812. He says the Democrats are worse than those people. He then continues, the militant left has, and I'm reading this, this is continuous. This is, I'm not hopping around in his speech. This is, you know, a four paragraph block here. The militant left has now seized control of our economy, of our culture, and of our country. Seized control. The woke left now controls the Democrat party, the entire federal government, the news media, academia, big tech, Hollywood, most corporate boardrooms, and now even some of our top military leaders. They are destroying just about everything they touch and they've got their hands on everything. This is not the time to be timid. This is the time to be bold. It's the, in their new socialist America, everyone will obey and no one will be allowed to complain. If you do speak up, boom, you will be canceled. This is the kind of language that fascist dictators use. This is, this is Vladimir Putin language. This is Viktor Orban language. This is, this is Mussolini language. This is how you tear a country apart by saying, my political opponents are evil and they're trying to destroy the country. And the battle is even a more consequential battle than a war in which we lost hundreds of thousands of soldiers. We have to be ready to, and, and then you got Donald Trump saying, Americans should be ready to lay down their lives. Which is kind of where I started this out. We've got a serious problem. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I don't know what it's going to take for the Republican Party to wake the hell up and go back to being just a normal political party. Right now, it's become a right-wing terrorist movement, it seems. So what do we do? 
What do we do? I mean, you know, it's not against the law to give a speech. It's not against the law to, to, to encourage this sort of thing like Rick Scott did. And, and what's most astonishing is, you know, CPAC was two weeks ago. Have you heard this in any of the media anywhere? I haven't. What do we do with this? Omar in Herndon, Virginia. Hey, Omar, what's on your mind today? Tom, how you doing? Good. I think we need to get ahead of this situation in Ukraine. I really think that we need to have a meeting with EU, America, Canada, need to have a meeting with Putin because the closer this war, because I think Ukraine is going to become another Lebanon. You're going to have constant conflict in there because the closer the, the more war goes, I think we're closer to World War Three. Yeah. I get what you're saying, Omar. I think if Putin wins and he takes Ukraine, then I, frankly, I believe then we're closer to World War III because next he sets his sights on Moldova and then Poland and Hungary and then the Baltic states. But there's disagreement about that in policy circles. I mean, literally both sides. Omar, thanks for the call. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. And welcome back. So uh, what all is going on in Russia right now? You know, Putin's terror campaign. And an interesting question, Omar just called and, and, and raised this question. If Putin takes all of Ukraine and, uh, you know, accomplishes that, does that make World War III more or less likely? I think, frankly, it makes World War III more likely because it says to Putin, okay, you know, you've done this with Georgia and South Ossetia and, and uh, Crimea, and, and uh, yeah, you, you know, there's, no, there's really no penalty for taking other countries. And what's next? Moldova clearly is next. They're not part of NATO, and they're right on Ukraine's border between Ukraine and Poland. And then, of course, Poland after that. Well, actually, I think Hungary would go after that, and then Poland. And then they'd start working their way up the Baltic states, you know, Latvia, Litvia, uh, excuse me, Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. And maybe Finland. Who knows? I mean, you know, Finland has a huge land border with Russia. Uh, Putin is trying to rebuild the old Soviet empire. He's, he's not even hiding it. I mean, he's bragging about it. He's, he gave a long, rambling, hour-long speech about it. This is not about NATO. This is about rebuilding Russia or the Soviet Union, as it were. So, but things aren't going the way he wants. And I'm of, personally, I'm of the opinion, if we stop Putin in Ukraine and either negotiate a settlement or expel him, and I think that the negotiated settlement is more likely unless he gets brought down by an internal coup or something, you know, some sort of palace intrigue. Um, I think that then reduces the chances of World War III. The wild card, of course, in all this right now is China. The Chinese stock market this morning just tanked, and in part because of rumors and stories that China is going to be taking Putin's side in this conflict, and that then could lead to um, not necessarily a rapid 
um, uh, crackdown on China, as it were, you know, a, a rapid boycott of Chinese goods, um, a, a rapid sanctions on China. I frankly doubt that's going to happen quickly because we are so dependent on China uh, because of, you know, these, these uh, neoliberal trade policies that Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush negotiated and Bill Clinton put into place. Um, you know, I was I lived in China in uh, for through for the month of November 1986, and it was a very poor country at the time. Uh, everything changed in the next couple of years, and as China adopted Alexander Hamilton's American plan, rather than going down the neoliberal road that Russia had gone down. So you know, there's a huge wild card there and a big question. But what Putin is doing right now is the kind of thing that you saw as the the war in Europe started going bad for Hitler. Uh, you know, if he's, he's doing a purge. He just, the first head to roll was Sergei Becetta. He was the head of the FSB. The FSB is the new version of the KGB, the, uh, the you know, the intelligence service of Russia. And, you know, that, that Putin used to work for in East Germany. And uh, he just fired the head of the FSB and, and put him under arrest. He also put into, uh, you know, fired and put under arrest Anatoly Boyko, uh, who is the number two guy at the FSB. He was, he was Becetta's deputy. The reason he said he's, he's firing these guys and, and imprisoning them is because they've been embezzling money from the intelligence service. Well, that's the business model for Russia. It's a kleptocracy, among other things. I mean, you know, the number one embezzler, obviously Putin himself. But now it's also being reported that eight army generals have been purged. Uh, this uh, from the Institute for the Study of War. Ukrainian Secretary of the National Security Defense Council Olesky Danilov stated on March 9th that the Kremlin has replaced eight generals due to their failures in Ukraine, although we can't independently verify that. But it's either this is either to save face or in retaliation for bad intelligence. And he's ratcheting up the suppression of the American public. So what else is happening? Well, this is amazing. Just hours after Marina Avsenikova, I'm sure I'm mangling her name. She's the woman who held the, you know, no war, they're lying to you sign on Russian television that has gone completely viral. Right after she was arrested, a member of parliament, Oleg Macheyev, showed another clip of, of Tucker Carlson. They're, they're playing Tucker Carlson like wall to wall on Russian state media all the time. And then he went on to say, after Ukraine's demilitarization is complete, we're going to raise the stakes. We're going to lift all the sanctions, the dissolution of NATO because the presence of NATO is getting in our way, extradition of war criminals like Zelensky and Poroshenko. We should be thinking about reparations to Russia for the damage caused by the sanctions, the return of all Russian properties which have been seized by the United States. At that point, the, author, the host said, are you including Alaska? And he said, that was my next point, as well as the Antarctic. We discovered them. They belong to us. And then the, the host said, does your list include a nuclear, a tactical nuclear strike, or are we going straight for a strategic one? The strategic strike, of course, is giant nukes taking out huge American cities. And uh, this member of parliament said, what for? We can take them out down without it. So apparently the Russian members of parliament are believing the press in Russia that everything's going great, we're about to, we're about to take down Ukraine, and what's next? Well, <laughs> the rest of the former Soviet Union, we're going to take that, and then Alaska. How do you think this is going to play out, not just here in the United States, but around the world? Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. Look, David Petraeus was on the news, right? And I'm going to summarize what he said, because I think it's very, very important. And I don't particularly like David Petraeus. As a matter of fact, I think he's an example of like a Shoigu as a kleptocrat. I think David Petraeus is kind of like that. I see him in the same vein. But, but he's a smart guy. And what David Petraeus was saying in a lot of words is what Russia is doing. Russia is fighting their plan. That's why they don't really know who the enemy is. That's why a lot of innocent people are dying. They're not actually fighting Ukrainians. They're fighting their plan. They're fighting their plan? T-H-E-I-R-P-L-A-N? What the hell is that? Well, it's military speak. And the United States, that's kind of a hallmark of us. We always fight our plan. 
And what that means is, is you go in with a plan, you think everybody understands it, but a lot of people either A, they don't understand it, a lot of commanders, they either A, don't oh, understand so, so it. So what you're saying, Dave, is, is, is not that the Russia is fighting against a plan. They're, they had a plan for the invasion, and even though it didn't work out the way they expected it to in the first couple of days, they're sticking with it. Is that what you're saying? Yes, that's why they sent that general down there to quote-unquote un- screw things, okay? Yeah. And then he got killed by Raktar, a UAV. But here's the deal. Here's why that's relevant. All right, we are very, very fortunate that, to have Joe Biden as a president right now. And I'm not just some groupie for Joe Biden, because Joe Biden's plan is to uh, coax to the Kremlin into different behavior using economic means. Now, the bad part about that is Every time we've done that throughout history, it's resulted in a major war happening in some place nobody – got to look it up on a map, right? Uh -huh. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you, uh, you mentioned the black hand, the assassination of Arch Archduke Ferdinand. I mean, when you, when you start putting economic pressure, especially on a country like Russia – and see, this goes back to David Petraeus because he's the architect of money as a weapon system. Russia cannot match us. You and what's his name? I don't know, Sean Hannity, say the same thing. Russia has a small economy. Small, small, small. Well, it's not just this me and Sean Hannity. It's, it's any economist on earth. I mean, it's, it's the reality. Right. They cannot match our economic ability, though they are right. trying. They cannot match our ability to win hearts and minds. But even they can match they our nuclear arsenal, and they have. Well, and what they can also do is they can call for China's help. And China can match us economically. So, Dave, as and a guy who spent 20 yeah. years in, in, in military intelligence, and I've got to move along to another caller here, yeah. how do you think China's going to respond? They're going to send mercenaries. <laughs> they're, going really? to, they're going to. Yep, that's wow. my prediction. And it's going to be a mess because... Wow. They're coming you know, from Syria like, right now. Right, and you do not have to do... Like Lindsey Graham uh, said, oh, well, you know, a general's going to shoot him in the head before he goes nuclear. Look, yeah. Lindsey Graham knows better. You don't have to do nuclear war for World War III. And also, let's take nuclear out of the equation. It will be massively destructive. We will craterize and rubbleize. Us and Russia will craterize and rubbleize Ukraine. Yeah. Well, we that's, will. That's, no one will want to go back. Yeah, no that's 50% done. Dave, thanks for the call. I, uh, grim stuff. Thank you very much. Tom in Pittsburgh. Hey, Tom, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, I got two quick questions for you. Uh, one is if Putin does or doesn't take Ukraine, do the sanctions stay? And secondly, if Putin is overthrown, who fills the vacuum? Does Russia go back to being a thugocracy? Yeah, well, it, you know, it definitely still is a thugocracy. And, and uh, you know, whether it would be uh, uh, Dmitry Med Medvedev, the guy who, you know, Putin was playing musical chairs with back in the, in the early 2000s, or somebody else, I honestly don't know. I don't know what the line of secession looks like. And an awful lot, I think, Tom, would depend on if, if Putin leaves office, the circumstances under which he leaves office. I mean, whether there's a full-blown kind of Bolshevik revolution type of coup where the senior leadership at the Kremlin is just swept out and replaced with something else, or if it's going to be just, you know, just one guy gets, uh, gets deposed, uh, you know, that being Putin, and he gets replaced by another you know, maybe a, a slightly friendlier face, but, you know, part of the same oligarchy. It's, at this moment, at least from my point of view, unknowable. I don't know the answer to it, and I don't think anybody does, and that's why there's not much discussion of it. Although, it, it's probably a topic for which it would be a good idea for us to begin having a conversation, you know, to get the world thinking about this, and perhaps most importantly, to get Putin thinking about it. Although, I can guarantee you, that, that long table that he's sitting at is not to protect him from germs. He, he is, uh, uh, you know, full-blown paranoid, this guy. Tom, thanks a lot for the call. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, what's on your mind today? I'll tell you, Professor, I want to first of all say that iron sharpens iron. I believe that President Biden can end all this controversy right now. All he's got to say is we've had a general, gentleman's agreement, and we're going to respect that gentleman's agreement. And we're not going to move any, any military uh, equipment or arms anywhere around Russia that's intimidating. We don't want anybody to be considered an enabler. We don't want our arms sales companies 
uh, which is a lot of money, by the way. We don't want them selling any arms over there. And, uh, you know, we're going to go ahead and go back to honoring that gentleman's agreement. He could do that, but Mr. Um, Mr. Biden is not driving the bus. The arm manufacturers, uh, Tom, they drive in the bus. They need a market. They got themselves one. But, you know, we're not 100 percent on this one. Everything we are accusing the Russians of doing, we, we've done hell. We just play your tapes for the last five years. You know, I don't call that critical race theory or council culture or wokeism. That's just reality. You know, just listen to your program and find out the same thing I know. So all he's got to do is just say we got a gentleman's agreement. I don't care if the Republicans are going to say, well, he's, he's backing down. Yeah, back down to save humanity. If he said we got a gentleman's agreement here, we're not going to put no um, uh, military stuff around. So Putin is asking for Ukraine to be demilitarized. This is one of his main demands, that, they, that, they, that all weapons vanish from Ukraine. How do you think that's going to play out, Morris? Well, I'm going to tell you something, Professor. Look at the alternative. Look at the choices we're dealing with. Both of them, got, got, you got bad and worse. You got bad and you got worse. And, and worse is us expanding. That NATO, which is another way of seeing the United States and arms dealership, us expanding over there. We had a gentleman's agreement, Tom. You know it. We wasn't going to do it. And now we're doing it anyway. And now that's facilitating other stuff. And everything we're accusing the Russians of doing, we've done. Look at what the Saudis are doing in Yemen. Look at what the Israelis are doing over there with the Palestinians. We ain't exactly 100% innocent on this one. No, look at what we did with Iraq and and, uh, Afghanistan and Vietnam. No, I, I get that point, Morris. I do think, though, that what we're looking at is an open assault on a democratic nation, on a democracy. And the other democracies of the world. Let me cut you short. Let me the, the, the democracy. We're not even a democracy. We got uh, voter suppression going on right now. We got gerrymandering going on right now. These subliminal messages. You so we should just roll over and say, "Screw it. We're just going to become an oligarchy like like Russia's Putin." Uh, Putin's wait, wait a minute. That's a, false, that's, that's a false narrative. I didn't say roll over and become an oligarchy. My narrative is this: this is this. We ain't supposed to be expanding militarily. That's it. And that's where all this thing got, got started. We had a gentleman's agreement, and we violated it, Tom. It's on us. We got blood on Are our you hands. Talking, you're not talking about the Budapest memorandum that the, the, the was a gentleman's agreement, that the United States and England would protect the borders of Ukraine against uh, you know, a foreign invasion. Is that what you're no, talking about? No, I ain't talking about that, but I'm talking about, I think it was Ronald Reagan and Brezhnev. What was those two old guys that got together? Oh, it was George Herbert Walker Bush and... and uh, I don't think it was Yeltsin. I think at that point it was uh, it was Gorbachev. Yeah, George Herbert Walker Bush and Gorbachev was basically you know yes we want to we want to expand NATO. That's yeah. So at the end of the day, either NATO is a defensive or an offensive force. And, they are and, offensive force. We they, they shouldn't yeah. even exist in World War II. What are they doing running around selling? After World War II was over, that was it. No, but yeah. they kept it going. Kind of yeah. reminded me of King George III and slavery. He trying to end slavery, but the market was so good they couldn't say no to it. They had to keep it going. Same thing with these armed companies. Yeah, I, I get I get your perspective. I disagree with it, Morris. Respectfully, I, I see NATO as a defensive force, and I see the invasion of Ukraine by Russia as a as a sterling example why Europe needs to have a defensive force. That every 40, 50 years, and and between World War One and World War Two, I guess it was what 20 years. We get these wild wars for territory breaking out in Europe. You know, a defensive force, to me, seems like a reasonable thing. So I I guess we'll have to agree to disagree. Morris, thanks for the call. I think it's the first time I've ever disagreed with you. We'll be back with more of your thoughts right on the other side of this break. Stick around. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu 
slash podcast. The uh, Department of Justice has indicted a Russian oligarch for making over a million dollars worth of illegal contributions. Uh, remember Lev, Igor and Lev? Well, they were the, the bagmen, apparently, along with a guy named Andrei Kakushkin. Uh, but Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman uh, were delivering this million dollars worth of illegal Russian contributions uh, to apparently mostly Russian Adam, Adam Laxalt, for example, uh, maybe. I mean, we're, we're still not sure, but uh, it looks like it's being reported anyway that uh, Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott also received Russian money. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this all shakes out. There's a, there's a pretty good threat about it. The Washington Post is tweeting about it um, and uh, has an article about it, about this uh, Russian oligarch who has now been, uh, it says, Andrei Muriev has been indicted by a federal grand jury in New York, part of a case that led to an investigation of former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. So as they say, watch this space. So Marsha Martin on Twitter says, uh, if Putin promised to keep Sarah Palin, an Alaskan deal might not be a bad idea for the U.S. <laughs> Sean, you're being channeled. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, also, with regard to the Supreme Court, I, I refer you to a piece by Nick Rostow, uh, president, he, uh, talking about, you know, the, the need for a code of judicial ethics that Congress can impose on the Supreme Court. And uh, he's, he wrote a piece called Why the Supreme Court Needs an Ethics Code over on Roll Call. Um, geez, it was uh, just November of last year he posted this. There's, there's no shortage of these calls. In fact, in 2013, as I recall, uh, Louise Slaughter in Congress introduced legislation specifically to impose a code of ethics on the Supreme Court. There are, I, in my opinion, and, and those of, uh, you know, legal scholars like Rostow, Multiple, who is a, uh, a senior research scholar at the Yale Law School, a member of Checks and Balances. This is a group of conservative and libertarian lawyers standing up for the rule of law. Uh, he's also a senior partner at a law firm in New York City. Um, you know, saying, yeah, you know, this is something we can do. This is something Congress should do. This is something that the Constitution envisions. So um, I'll just leave it at that and pick up your phone calls. Uh, should we? Should we offer? Sarah Palin in exchange for uh, uh, peace in Ukraine? I, I, I say that entirely tongue-in-cheek. We'll, we'll see. Uh, this, this is actually a very serious, very sad, very tragic situation. And it's also a war crime. And uh, the war criminals need to be held to account for it. Meanwhile, I mentioned this uh, extraordinary woman who uh, stood up on Russian television and said, the war, you know, stop the war, it's a lie. Um, and I'm not going to try and mangle her name again, uh, but you know who I'm talking about. You can find it online. Um, she actually issued a statement, um, and she said that this was a pre-recorded message that played on social media after she appeared on Russian television. She said, what is happening in Ukraine is a crime, uh, and Russia is the aggressor here, and responsibility for this aggression rests on the conscience of a single man, Vladimir Putin. My father is Ukrainian, my mother is Russian, and they've never been enemies. And this necklace that I'm wearing is a symbol of the fact that Russia must immediately end this fratricidal war, and our fraternal peoples will be able to make peace. Unfortunately, I've spent many of the last few years working for Channel One, the Kremlin propaganda, and I'm deeply ashamed of this. Ashamed that I allowed, the, and she goes on about this, ashamed that I allowed the justification of the Russian people. We were silent, and, and she goes on from there. GoPro, and then she wraps it up, it, it, it gets rather lengthy. She wraps it up and she says, go protest, don't be afraid of anything. They can't lock us all away. Well, Putin remembers a time when they could lock them all away, when one third of all of Germany was spying on the other two thirds of Germany and he was part of that program. So I'm not quite as optimistic about that, but you know, good on her, uh, absolutely good on her. So Tim in Chenley Park, Illinois. Hey Tim, it says here you're a troll, is that true? No, I'm not a troll. Okay, so what's uh, up? I've called you before. I've met you in real life at your book signing. Okay. Uh, in uh, in the suburbs, you know. You know, I guess you know. I'm stalking you. I mean, I guess I'm a stalker. I mean, Tom, <laughs> All right. So I what? Think you're, what do you want to disagree with me about, Tim? It says you want to disagree. What's on your mind? I think there's many things that the Democratic Party uh, 
uh, I guess, uh, activists or members or whoever do that alarm me, that, that shock me, that uh, I disagree with, uh, wholeheartedly disagree with. Uh, and I don't think that I'm going to be taking up arms against my neighbors, against my relatives, against Tom Hartman. Uh, you seem like a pretty, pretty nice man to me. Uh, I disagree with your politics. Is that wrong? Uh, I don't want to see some of your politics win the day. Is that wrong? Is that violent? I mean, you're, as soon as you say that the Republicans are trying to, to uh, ruin gas, they're trying to... They're, well, Except Democrats are not passing laws, Tim. Democrats are not passing laws to make it harder for people to vote. Democrats are not passing laws to try to basically silence Americans. Democrats are not passing laws or trying to pass laws you know, yes, to give the death penalty you, to people who, who want an abortion. No, we're not. You're completely silencing my voice, completely. If I go to a school board and say, what you're teaching my five-year-old child is completely disgusting, then all of a sudden I'm unemployed. I'm, I'm I, I, I don't think you are unemployed, family. Tim. You're, you're welcome to say whatever you want. It's a free country. If you start spouting yeah. racist rhetoric or homophobic rhetoric, okay. you will be appropriately, okay. um, you know, uh, what, what would the word be? Uh, you know, you'll be probably horrified. Ostracized is the word, yeah. Ostracized. But ostracization is a whole different thing from tyranny, Tim. I mean, you know, th this well, whole conservative snowflake thing that somebody doesn't like the fact that I want to use the N-word or whatever is, is uh, frankly, pathetic, Tim. Well, it's pathetic that you went to the N-word, Tom, because that's not where I'm headed with this. Where I'm headed with this is that we have to get along as neighbors. We're all neighbors, whether we like it or not. And I'm not going to I'm not going to tell my neighbor he's wrong because he's upset that my dog is doing stuff on his lawn. He's not a bigot. He's not a he's not a timophobe. He's a guy. I don't think we're talking about dog like poop, Tim. We're talking about the now, right to vote. We're talking about Rick wait, Scott wait. saying that 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 people essentially should take up arms. We're talking about Donald Trump saying you have to be willing to lay down your life for your country. Democrats against are against Democrats. Seattle is no longer. You have to move people out of Seattle because Democrats have taken them over. You know, I've been to see, see happened, I live in Portland. Come on, true? Tim, this is this is the this is the kind of weird BS that you're being fed by right wing media. Tim, I, you know, I, if, I'm going to I'm going to leave it at that. I, you reach a certain point where it's like you're trying to rebut a non reality. It's like trying to debate whether the world is flat with somebody who's absolutely convinced the world is flat. The world is not flat. Sorry, Tim. Holly in Washington, D.C. Hey, Holly, what's up? Well, I just wanted to present something in the conversation about the war that I haven't heard yet. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd like just to hear your hit on it. So, you know, Trump had four years of selling top security secrets. We know that's what he's doing. I mean, you just know it by his character. Sure. And what that 15 boxes <laughs> represents to me is what he hadn't gotten paid for yet. I think that's possible. I want to know how many, how many, uh, you know, Russian spies and other, you know, similar folks came down to Mar-a-Lago to go through those 15 boxes. Yeah, what I'm saying is that Biden administration has only been there, what, 14 months and mm -hmm. to try to connect the dots of how compromised, where the compromises are and what any of our adversaries could possibly do to this country without firing a weapon that we have to take into account in any decision that's being made. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think it's significant. I think it's significant. Oh, Trump, not only that, Trump shut down the Office of Internet Security. It wasn't called that, but, you know, that, that uh, yeah. Obama put in the White House. He shut that thing down when he came into office. And everybody has forgotten now, but four years ago, the big news story was they've discovered that the Russians are inside the Treasury Department's computers and inside the Commerce Department's computers, Steve Mnuchin and, and Wilbur Ross's uh, organizations. And God only knows where else they are, because we can't figure it out, because it wasn't our government who discovered it. It was, it was one of these private security firms. And that was because yeah. Trump shut down. He closed, you know, he opened the door to Russia and he kept it that way for four years. And then in his fourth year, he fired Chris Krebs, the head of cybersecurity for the Department of Homeland Security. So it's like, hey, Russia, come on in. I mean, that, we, we have this giant party here all this time. So anyhow, I, I, I got to move along, Holly, but thank you for the yeah, call. Yeah. And thank you for your yeah. points. I, I, I appreciate yeah, it. Okay. Good to hear from you. Zeke in Portland. Hey, Zeke. Yeah, Tom, I would like to see just a shred of intellectual honesty from the best and the brightest elitists in this country. The same set of people who got us into Vietnam 
and the second Iraq war and 20 years of Afghanistan, I would like to hear them say that what is really going on here is nuclear blackmail. That is what is being worked very effectively by Vladimir Putin to prevent this country from doing what we need to do to keep Ukraine from being annihilated. And I am talking about, at the least, at the minimum, a no-fly zone. If we do this, they can win. They can stop this badness in Ukraine. If this does not happen, he is going to take down the Baltic countries. I just got an email from David K. Johnston. I think you know him. David has relatives in Slovakia. He has visited the Baltics. All of those people, David says, fully expect to be invaded. Now, you tell me, Tom, what is the magic that's going to happen when one of these NATO countries is invaded that's going to make the nuclear blackmail suddenly go away because the president, Biden, has said he will defend every inch of NATO territory. Right. So why, why, not, why not defend Ukraine now? They can defeat the Russians on the ground with our help because if we don't do this, we're going to be in a situation down the road where we're going to have to send hundreds of thousands of American troops to Europe to stop this. Yeah, okay. I, I, I largely agree with you, Zeke. And and I think that a no fly zone over Ukraine would infuriate the Russians. But I, I don't think that they're willing to start a nuclear war over it. But again, I no, they're you know, not because. Well, not, let, me, let me just finish this thought and then you can respond to yeah. it. But I, you okay. know, I, it, it's real easy sitting here in a radio studio, you know, thousands of miles away from 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 the conflict zone to say, you know, to pontificate about how American policy should be done particularly foreign policy that involves war. And, and I'm, I, I'm, my personal opinion is that we should be doing a, a no-fly zone. But I'm not willing to argue strongly for that or, or ask people to call their senators and stuff like that about that, because at least for the moment, I'm willing to cut this administration you know, the, the benefit of the doubt, that they are better informed than I am. Now, I realize that you know, a, a lot of people said that about George W. Bush's intelligence on, on Iraq. And a lot of people said that about uh, you know, Lyndon Johnson's intelligence on Vietnam. And, and we've been you know, buffaloed before, uh, or BSed before, or whatever. But uh, you know, I, th- this is a, a very different uh, situation. This is not a U.S. war of aggression. And, but B, I, I really think that in the next two days, you're going to see a real substantial change as a result of the two points of Zelensky addressing the U.S. Congress and uh, Biden showing up for a NATO meeting on Thursday. So I'm going to hold my rants in abeyance and see what happens. Well, we don't have a lot of time here, Tom. I agree. Uh, they can, these people cannot hold out forever. They are, they are incredibly brave. And you know, it's good that we've done all the sanctions and that we're sending in the javelins and, and the stingers and all that. It is all necessary, but it is, it is not sufficient. It is not sufficient. Yeah. We need to do the no-fly zone. Uh, one more thing. I have, by Alexander- way, I, have, I have outspokenly argued and on mm-hmm. Twitter and on this program as well. And in fact, I tweeted my, my two senators that at the very least give those polish migs to ukraine and do it now that would be good just one more thing do you know who alexander dugan is yeah, does that name a ring russian, a bell for you russian neo-fascist philosopher exactly exactly he's written a book called foundations of geopolitics which is required reading in all the russian military academies right. in which he describes a brief for Russian ambitions from Dublin to Vladivostok. Yeah. And he yeah. claims he claims that Ukraine as a state has no geopolitical meaning. You might want to look into him a little bit more than maybe you have. Yeah, uh, there, there have been a couple of good is, articles about him. I believe there was one in the Atlantic. But mm-hmm. yeah, you're absolutely right. He's he, and he's the kind of the Putin whisperer. Zeke, exactly. thanks a lot. He's Putin's Rasputin. There Putin's Rasputin. There you go. Thank you, Zeke. Thanks for the call. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Class. This is from the introduction. Does power corrupt or are corrupt people drawn to power? Are entrepreneurs who embezzle and cops who kill the outgrowths of bad systems 
or are they just bad people? Are tyrants made or born? If you were thrust into a position of power, would do temptations to line your pockets or torture your enemies, gnaw away at you until you gave in? Somewhat unexpectedly, we can start to find an answer to those questions on two forgotten faraway islands. Far off the western coast of Australia, a tiny speck of land called Beacon Island barely rises above the surrounding sea. Scrubby green grass covers its surface, skirted by beige sand on its triangular coastline. You could just about throw a baseball from one side and hit the ocean on the other. It seems unremarkable, an uninhabited blip of an island with a bit of coral peppering the shallows offshore. But Beacon Island holds a secret. On October 28, 1628, a 160-foot-long spice ship called the Batavia set sail from the Netherlands. The trading vessel was part of a fleet owned by the Dutch East India Company, a corporate empire that dominated global trade. The Batavia carried a small fortune in silver coins ready to be exchanged for spices and the exotic riches that awaited in Java, part of modern-day Indonesia. It carried 340 people. Some were passengers. Most were crew. One was a psychopathic pharmacist. The ship was organized into a strict hierarchy in which the accommodation got more spartan as one moved toward the bow. In the stern, the captain held court in the great cabin chewing on salted meat as he barked orders to his officers. Two decks below, soldiers were crammed into an unventilated, rat-infested crawl space that would be used to hold spices on the return journey. All on the Batavia knew their rank. A few rungs below the captain was a junior merchant named Geronimus Cornelius, a down-and-out former apothecary. He'd signed up to sail in desperation after losing everything through a series of personal calamities. Shortly after the sails were first unfurled, he set in motion a plan to reverse his misfortunes. In conjunction with a senior officer, Cornelius plotted a mutiny. He steered the ship off course in preparation for seizing control in isolated waters. If all went according to plan, he'd take control of the Batavia and start a lavish new life, bought with silver coins in the hold. It didn't go according to plan. On June 4, 1629, the wooden hull of the Batavia splintered as it crashed full speed into a coral reef in the low-lying Abrolos Islands off the Australian coast. There had been no warning, no call to change course. In an instant, it was clear the boat was doomed. Most of the passengers and crew tried to swim ashore. Dozens drowned. Others tried to cling to what was left of the Batavia. Realizing that nobody would survive unless they were rescued, the captain took control of the emergency longboat and most of the salvaged supplies. With 47 others, including the entire senior leadership of the crew, he set off for Java. He promised that they'd soon return with a rescue party. Hundreds were abandoned with little food, almost no water, and only a faint hope that someday someone would return. Nothing grew or lived on the barren island. It was obvious the survivors were running out of time. Cornelis, the would-be mutineer, was among those left behind. There was no longer a seaworthy ship to take over, but he didn't know how to swim, so standing on what remained of the sinking Batavia seemed preferable to plunging into the water and frantically splashing his way to the island. For nine days, 70 men, including Cornelius, occupied a shrinking territory of dry wood. They drank as they contemplated the inevitable. On June 12th, the ship finally broke apart. The surf bashed some of the remaining men against the sharp coral, giving them a quicker end than others who flailed for a few minutes before drowning. Cornelis somehow survived. He eventually floated to the island in a mass of driftwood, the last man to escape Batavia alive. When he reached the refuge of soggy sand on what is now Beacon Island, the anarchy and chaos of survival instincts reverted to the established order of hierarchy and status. Though Cornelis washed ashore ragged and weak, he was still an officer. That meant he was in charge. The Batavia was a highly hierarchical society, the historian Mike Dash says, and that survived on the island as well. The hundreds marooned on the sparse grasslands of the pitiful island rushed to help their superior. They'd live to regret it, or at least some would live. Once recovered and replenished, Cornelius did some quick calculations. The situation was dire. The food, water, and wine that had survived the wreck wouldn't last. The supply was not going to expand, he figured, so it was necessary to reduce the demand. 
the survivors needed fewer stomachs to fill. Cornelis started to consolidate power by eliminating potential rivals. Some were sent on foolhardy missions in small boats and then pushed overboard to drown. Others were accused of crimes, a pretext used to sentence them to death. Those grisly executions asserted Cornelis' authority, but they also provided a useful loyalty test. Men who would kill on his orders were useful. The book is Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us by Brian Klaas. Clifton in St. Louis. Hey, Clifton, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Uh, I've called here before, and I want to start this conversation by saying that this is all a tragic diversion. There should be no conversation other than climate change. Now to the current diversion. Okay. <laughs> well, I think the we current are... diversion ties into climate change hugely. I mean, keep in mind, 40% of Europe's energy is fossil fuels coming from Russia. 55% of Germany's natural gas is coming from Russia. 40% of Russia's revenue is coming from fossil fuels. And now we're discovering that Russian oligarchs are funding Republican politicians who deny climate change. And that's just the point I call to talk about fascism. Fascism is something that's in bread in all politics today. People might not recognize, especially the poor people in America, you're working against your own self-interest when you say the Republicans or the Democrats this, okay? The problem is that fascism is running our country, okay? If you look at the polls, there's not one thing that's polled that's being taken care of in Washington that the people are in favor of. Everything is geared toward the businesses. And I also wanted to say this, and I'll get off. The war in that's currently going on in Ukraine is good for business. Okay, if we weren't sending tons and tons of aid to those people, yeah. we would just turn our backs. In order to do so, I don't think this is being driven by business, Clifton. The the amount of money that's going to American weapons manufacturers for Ukraine is insignificant compared to the overall military budget, which is more than half of all our federal spending. Yeah, but they're still making money off of it. Yeah, they're making I mean, money it, off of it. You've got a three trillion dollar federal budget. You got a trillion and a half dollars going to the Defense Department, and we're talking a couple hundred million dollars, or maybe even a few billion dollars going to Ukraine. I get it that, you know, the military contractors should not be profiteering off war. They should not be allowed to lobby for wars. They shouldn't be promoting wars. The Pentagon needs to be audited. It has never, literally never, ever been audited. There's massive graft and corruption and all of that. But I really think that the American response bringing weapons into Ukraine to the Ukraine conflict is not to increase McDonnell Douglas's profits. It's the fact that a sister democracy is under attack by an autocratic oligarchy. Well, then why don't we go to all renewables and cut off the oil? Well, that's what Joe Biden tried to do. I mean, he proposed a half a trillion dollars to renewableize America. And every single Republican, many of them taking money apparently from Russian oligarchs, and all of them taking money from fossil fuel billionaires and their buddies, and two and Democrats, Manchin and Cinema, said, no, we're not going to let you do that. So, you know, I mean, I, they're trying their best, Clifton. I mean, they're doing their best. But fascism rules. Yeah, I, I get it. Clifton, thank you for the call. I, we have problems here in the United States. We have a lot of problems. And, and, and frankly, I, I'm of the opinion that the core of most of our problems is, is found with the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court's corrupt decisions saying that billionaires, oligarchs in America can own politicians. But I, I still don't think we're a fascist state. We're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. And that said, I think that if Donald Trump had held on to the White House, we would be a fascist state right now. That's how close we are. Roy in Ontario, Canada. Hey, Roy, what's on your mind today? Hey, good to speak with you, Tom. If we need further proof that Russia will not stop at Ukraine, that separatist region, by the way, in Moldova, is called Transnistria. Transnistria, and thank you. You're right. That's right. And very recently, their parliament or legislature, whatever you want to call it, openly called for the territory to be absorbed by Russia, right. very much like the separatist regions in Ukraine. And much like those separatist regions, they have a large 
Russian-speaking population and are very hostile towards people people who speak Moldovan, people who speak Romanian. So it's the the, the similarities are there absolutely. Yeah. yeah, Transnistria is on the border of Ukraine and Poland. It's on the border of Ukraine and Romania. Do I exactly. do, do I have that right? Okay. Thanks for the information. I really appreciate it. It's always good and to keep another, straight. Yeah, go ahead. Another fact about another fact about Transnistria that should really show you their ambition. They're the only country or only territory in the world that still retains the Soviet hammer and sickle as part of their flag. Oh wow, that's remarkable, <laughs> Roy. Thank you. Th- thank you very much. I, I, I truly appreciate it. Chuck in uh, Indianapolis. Hey, Chuck. You say the Pentagon is being audited? Really? Yes, it is. In fact, in FY20. Fully 35% of $3.1 trillion financial portfolio has received an unqualified audit opinion. Well, it's a start. In, in so far as I know, insofar as I know, only one entity has received a qualified report. So 45% of the DOD financial portfolio has a clean audit report. Well, that's very impressive. I'd like to learn more about that, Chuck. I'll, uh, any sources you recommend? Well, I went out to DOD.gov and found it, uh, and plus I've got 40 years working in the Department of Defense in financial management. Mm. This is something I worked uh, I worked for 40 years of my life. Cool. Okay, Chuck, thank you. Thanks for correcting me if, if, if I am in fact wrong. I appreciate it. Uh, we will wrap up the show at this point. <laughs> Tomorrow's another day, right? Thanks so much for being with us today, and, and thanks for your continuing activism and concern and care, your prayers for peace in this world. And let's not forget, Ukraine is not the only conflict point. Uh, there's famine right now in, in Yemen as a result of the Saudi attacks there. We still have problems in this hemisphere. Haiti is in crisis. Um, so let's, let's just not forget. And in Afghanistan, you got 20 million people on the edge of famine. So get out there, get active, tag your it, say a prayer. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.